Hi, I'm Kira Gorman, and you're listening to QEB Voices. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. You can find us at QEB Voices on Twitter, Spotify, and iTunes. Welcome to QUB Voices' first thematic episode of 2021. My name is Kira, and this is your first time hearing from me because I wasn't able to record for our very first episode back in the autumn when you met the rest of the team. I'm a second year PhD student in the Department of French, and I work on representations of female villainy in contemporary French crime fiction. I grew up on a diet of murder mysteries, whodunits, police procedurals and puzzles, so I'm really interested in how people think, which ties in well with this month's theme of mental health. Today, I'll be speaking to Dr. Lisa Bunting and Dr. Paul Best, both from the School of Social Science, Education and Social Work here at Queen's, about what mental health is, how mental ill health can manifest, and the exciting and innovative ways that technology can help us treat mental health problems. By way of a content warning, we'll be speaking about a range of mental health topics in this episode, including anxiety, PTSD and eating disorders. These are sensitive and topical issues, especially in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. Everyone you know is probably struggling with something right now in one way or another. If you're not feeling great, you know someone who isn't, or you've been affected by any of the issues we'll be talking about in this episode, please reach out to someone you trust or to a support service. You can find links to these in the show notes. episode off, I'm here with Dr. Lisa Bunting, a senior lecturer at SSESW. Um, Lisa, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work just to start us off? No problem. Hi, Kira. It's lovely to be here. Um, my name's Lisa. I'm a senior lecturer in social work at Queen's. I've worked here for roughly six years. And prior to that, I worked for NSPCC um, for around 11 years. And Really, my research interests lie in the kind of broad area of child welfare, um, particularly children's experiences of adversity and trauma. And more recently, I have launched with colleagues at Ulster and Queen's um, the first ever mental health prevalence survey of children and young people across Northern Ireland. Okay, that that sounds fascinating. We're going to get into that in a few minutes. So I suppose you're drawing on kind of your your wealth of expertise um, and all your years working in this area. I wonder if you could explain to our listeners exactly what we mean when we say mental health, because it's kind of a capacious term nowadays. Like, has this definition changed much in the last couple of decades? I think it's really important to try and distinguish between mental health and what we mean by mental illness or mental disorder. So mental health is a much broader concept. What it really means is it's referring to our psychological or emotional health and well-being. So it's a much more generic term. It's about how we're feeling about ourselves, how we behave, how we cope, how we engage with other people. 
when we talk about mental disorders or, or mental illnesses, usually things we might be talking about might be anxiety disorders, depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, those kind of things. These are specific clinical disorders. There are very specific criteria for, for diagnosing them. Um, they will involve, obviously, um, problems with emotional and psychological well-being, but really there are a much higher degree of severity that have a major impact on somebody's life. So mental health is a more general universal concept. And I think one of the big changes has been over the past few decades, it's been getting people to understand that we all have mental health. Right. So we're trying to move away from this very diagnostic medical model of understanding. It's not just the absence of, of illness or a disorder. It's about something that's very fluid. It changes over time. We all have mental health. Some days it's better than others. And there's a whole range of factors that will influence that for every day, for people every day and at different stages in their life. Yeah, I, that's actually very true, because I suppose when we use the word mental health, I think there's a tendency to automatically categorize it as negative um, rather than acknowledging that it's something that we all have, just like our physical health, which can have its own ebbs and flows and things. So, yeah, that, and I suppose, you know, if that's one of the, the big developments and changes that we have made in, in talking and thinking about mental health in the last little while, you know, are there are there other changes that we've seen? Are there other particular areas, for example, I'm thinking that might have be the, the subject of more intense research focus right now? Are there are there mental ill health conditions, I suppose, that are more um, in the spotlight at the minute? It's an ever-changing field. I mean, really, it's it's thousands of different fields and, and disciplines. I mean, for me, coming from a kind of social science perspective, some of the big ones, and this has been around for, for several decades, but you really see the emphasis on it, that it's not just one factor. It's not something within an individual. It happens at multiple levels. So there's a whole range of individual factors about a person, their health, their gender, their sexual identity, and their personality traits brain development that can affect mental health. But then outside of that, within their family system, within their friends, their community, their neighbourhood, there's a whole other wealth of other factors that are important contributors to their mental health as well. So how they get on with parents, how they get on with siblings, the relationships they have with peers, schools. So I mean, some of those changes in definition as well have really allowed us to moving away from a deficit approach to really start to think actually what is positive mental health, what mm. makes people resilient, and so that allows us to to take a more ecological approach and actually think that relationships, having good relationships, having support, feeling connected to a family, a circle of friends, a community, that's a really huge protective factor in terms of mental health, and I really you see that that focus in a lot of the research increasingly. And you see a real increase in multidisciplinary work. So there's people working from genetics, social scientists, public health experts, um, behavioral theorists, all trying to come at similar conditions or similar issues, but all bringing totally different perspectives, recognizing that there's this constant interaction between the individual and their environment. So it's a real combination of environmental and genetic factors in, in how your mental health does. And does that change over time? Like if your environment changes, you know, how, how does that impact on your mental health? I mean, it, it changes it changes over time and it depends on the nature of the illness itself. I mean, there would right. be some disorders that would be considered to be more genetically linked than others. Okay. For example, some neurodevelopmental disorders, um, bipolar, schizophrenia. With, with, but there's no one disorder, there's 100%. So there's always the role of the environment. And 
what we increasingly recognize as well, and this is particularly of interest to me from my own research perspective, is the role of childhood experiences and particularly adverse or traumatic experiences. We do know that those experiences have a really strong link, not just with poor mental health in childhood, but also in adulthood. And, and increasingly that is being recognized and where we focus on our research efforts around life course perspectives, where we're thinking some of those childhood experiences underpin what we see many, many decades after those experiences have occurred. And often when we're not seeing the, the person and thinking about what has happened to them, there might be links there with their physical health, but also very clear links are being made with their mental health. So that that's allowing people to, to kind of focus on a more life course perspective, but also and it's important to say this as well, it's not deterministic. You know, there are plenty right. of people who have trauma in childhood and they don't go on to experience um, mental health problems or maybe only temporarily. So the big element is trying to try and understand why we end up with different trajectories. Why does one person have some ex certain experiences and they're able to, to manage those and they don't translate into mental health problems and what differentiates them from people who do have certain experiences and then go on to experience mental health problems as well. Okay. And I wonder actually, could you, could you talk to me a little bit more about what you mean when you say adverse childhood experiences? Because I think some people tend to, like, I suppose we're all guilty of it. You know, when we think about trauma, we think about trauma with a capital T. Um, but I, like poverty can also be a really uh, influencing factor in, in, you know, in childhood adversity. So I, can you talk to me a little bit more about that? Of course. Yes. I mean, this, this is a, this has been a topic that's been really growing in terms of its research interest over the over the past 10 years. I think it was probably 10 years ago that I mm. kind of first came across the term. And it's trying to differentiate between acute trauma and chronic things that can happen in childhood that maybe not might not rise individually to the level of an acute trauma, but over the course of time have an impact. So we refer to adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, perhaps un unfortunately, as they're referred to usually are a combination of maltreatment-based childhood experiences, as well as a whole range of family dysfunctions for parental mental illness, um, addictions, um, time spent in prison, th those kind of things. So it's trying to get a full range of childhood experiences. It is very focused within the family, but increasingly people are also, and that's a common criticism, that it doesn't take account of structural factors, but increasingly um, experiences of poverty, finances, discrimination. People are also recognising that those two are adverse childhood experiences that have the potential to affect later life outcomes as well. But that's generally what we mean by ACEs. It's around family dysfunction and abuse-related adversities. And I think you've been working really closely on this subject for a while, because as you, you mentioned at the top of the show, you were part of the team that carried out the, the largest survey of mental health in Northern Ireland children and their families to date, the, the Youth Wellbeing Survey. Can you tell me a bit more about this project, how it came to be, how it was carried out? Okay, th this is a project that was funded by the Health and Social Care Board under um, transformation monies and we'd known for a long time this was a really big gap in Northern Ireland and we were mm -hmm. having to rely on um, studies, prevalent studies from, from England and other parts of the UK. But we'd always had a, a concern or an understanding that rates might be different in Northern Ireland, part of, partly because of our own particular con our context in terms of conflict mental health problems and trauma amongst parents and also because of our higher levels of deprivation because obviously they're strongly linked as well. So we'd known it was really important to kind of have this work and have it to underpin our policy direction. So 
when the opportunity became available, the Health and Social Care Board made, made funding available. And what we did was carry out a, a random probability household survey um, that involved uh, 3,700 or 3,074 children and young people aged 2 to 19 across Northern Ireland. Okay. And we were asking them about different elements of their mental health functioning. We also included within that a, a short uh, survey of their parents to explore some of their, their, their background family characteristics, but also to include a more general measure of the parental mental health as well. So it was a, it was a large study. Um, we finished our field work in March um, of this just year. In time. And <laughs> just in time, literally at five days before we went Whoa. into national lockdown. So the survey God smiled upon us and we ended up with what we wanted, which was unbiased data. Okay. Of where we stand in terms of mental health generally in Northern Ireland, though we, we might imagine that that has actually changed, obviously, since lockdown as well. Yeah, I can imagine that the impact of coronavirus obviously it, like is impacting everybody everywhere. And so, like, you know, when you're talking about unbiased data on the broad kind of mental health of children in Northern Ireland, what were the results of your findings um, obviously, we, we have a huge range of findings within it, but but some mm. of the key ones probably relate to um, mood and anxiety disorders. These would be the okay. most common forms of mental health. By and large, these would form the, the, the biggest proportion of all men, common mental health um, problems that young people and adults would have. So we found that one in eight children and young people met the diagnostic criteria for common and mood and anxiety disorders. We also were interested particularly in terms of um, post-traumatic stress disorder, given our, our history in Northern Ireland. And we also included a, a new measure of a relatively new diagnosis, which is complex um, post-traumatic stress disorder, which has similar elements um, of uh, PTSD, but also includes a lot of relational damage. And there's a, a strong theoretical understanding that some of those ACEs and those chronic childhood trauma exposures actually are, are the key contributing factors to complex PTSD where people may have problems with, you know, emotional regulation, sustaining positive relationships with people through, throughout the course of their life. And we found that um, one in 20 young people um, in Northern Ireland coming up on 5% of 11 to 19 year olds met the criteria for either PTSD or complex PTSD. Uh, we also looked at a, a whole range of other screening measures. I mean, some of the standout ones, you know, for me are the fact that um, on a risk screening tool, very brief um, eating disorder screening tool, 16.2% of young people um, screen positive for that. Now, that's not to say every single one of those young people has an eating disorder. Of course, they mm. don't rate don't tend to be higher than one or two percent in the population, but they're highlighting that there's a significant at risk group. The rates for um, girls are substantially double what they would be for, for, for boys. And really, quite concerningly, about 7% of, of young people actually reported having induced vomiting. So already, with, regardless of whether they're, they have an eating disorder, that's a fairly significant, you know, negative health behaviour that, that we want to think about and how we address this in terms of prevention strategies and getting information out there. They're terrifying we statistics, also, you know, they're really scary, especially when you're talking about children, you know, like two to 19 was the age group of, of this study. And it's actually really frightening to see um, the, the prevalence of not, not even just eating disorders, but like general mood and anxiety disorders, complex PTSD. I like I wonder, can you kind of hazard a guess at what might be causing these things? I'm not sure if that was really included in your survey, but I, I wonder if you personally could could share maybe your thoughts on 
how how we ended up here. I mean, there, there are so many factors that are influential in this and, and what we have done. We're going to, the team and ourselves, we're going to be working with um, the board and key stakeholders to really make sure that we try and use this data in a really meaningful way. What we did as part of our initial analysis is we did some modelling of a whole range of different child, um, family and community level factors to try and identify what kind of stood out. So we had about 15, 20 factors in this particular model and each of them were all linked, you know, things like child mm-hmm. health, gender, age, each of those had individually had a relationship. But once we started to control for the effect of each of them kind of hitting off each other, we got six key factors that emerged and, and um, overwhelmingly uh, exposure to childhood adversity and trauma. If you okay. had been exposed to um, three or more ACEs um, in, in your childhood, you were eight times more likely to have a common mood or anxiety disorder. So that was wow. by far and away the, the biggest one. Other issues, obviously, child age, as children get older, they um, and obviously they're, they're more aware, there's more pressures upon them. Teen, being a teenager is a huge time of transition. Um, we probably live in a time of big cultural shifts and uncertainty as well. So as, as we get older, there there is a much greater risk um, for older teenagers than there would be for younger teenagers. And also, you know, issues around poverty. We didn't necessarily find a, find a really strong relationship with area level deprivation, what kind of community you came from. But we did mm-hmm. find a, a, a strong relationship um, with your family being on benefits. So obviously there, there's factors in there. So parental mental health, child health, ACEs, those were really the, the key factors that stood out as contributing um, the most to common mood and anxiety disorders. And we're going to be looking at that in relation to a whole range of different disorders, whether to say it, whether it, they're, they're kind of generic across the board or whether there's certain factors that link to different disorders in different ways. And part of this will be trying to tease out those trajectories, how some kids ended up having very high levels of um, emotional distress or or problems with behavior and how some young people didn't, but maybe had similar experiences. Okay, so so it sounds like untangling. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot more work to be done there and and more surveys to be done. I think this probably leads me nicely, I suppose, to our, our final question. Like in the context of this report, where do we go from here? And I I ask this knowing that, you know, we're in a, a COVID-19, a post-COVID-19 situation, um, which I think has brought a lot of stuff up to the surface for people, um, especially, you know, in terms of like ACEs, as you say, um, the prevalence of anxiety disorders, I would imagine, um, has been exponentially increased during this particularly anxious time for everybody. You know, mm-hmm. what, what, how, do, how do you think about we take this data and, and move forward from here? I think definitely, I mean, you you can imagine that COVID has contributed to anybody who was having problems with anxiety or depression, um, problems with uh, obsessive compulsive behaviours. You know, Mm -hmm. you you can imagine that the situation that we find ourselves in has has certainly exacerbated that for, for some people as well. Um, I also like bear, bear in mind, it's also where those those proper pressures and anxieties are coming from. For some young people, there has been the opportunity to spend more time with family. There has been the opportunity, maybe if they're being bullied at school, to be a little bit. So I don't think it will be a negative for everybody. But I think overall, mm. you know, we, naturally, we will imagine that it's increased um, a lot of those particular common mood and anxiety disorders. And also in terms of childhood trauma, some people, unfortunately, and this will be adults as well, will potentially be in lockdown with the people who are 
contributing to their trauma. Yeah, totally. So yeah. we can imagine there's situations there where they're not in a safe lockdown either. Um, what I think it has done on the on the positive side, if we can find anything positive about this, I think what it has done is actually make people very well aware. And this has been increasing over time, reducing the stigma around mental health has been a huge issue, is that everybody's very well aware of their own mental health. And they're very now well aware of actually the role other people support, contact, how much we rely on being with other people to actually help us feel good and feel stable. And in a sense, I think that is a, could, it has the potential to be a real game changer that, you know, now when we talk about mental health and we talk about resilience, we talk about support networks, people can really think about their own experience in terms of COVID. And it doesn't seem that strange or difficult to understand. So if we can stay away with just going down the route of medical, a medical response to COVID and we could develop a, a much more holistically focused one that looks at the, the whole person rather just vaccines and hospitalizations, then I think there, there's an opportunity there as well. Right. So things like investing in communities are probably really important. You know, I like in my own personal experience, I've seen so much investment in my local community um, from people who live here, you know, supporting local businesses, all of that kind of stuff, you know, making sure that there's been there was a huge increase in people volunteering for like Meals on Wheels programs, making sure elderly people in the community were looked after, it, particularly in the most restrictive parts of lockdown earlier in the year. And that that's really heartwarming. Um, but it's also a product of people having more time. Um, I think when when the busy life returns, I wonder if we'll be able to keep up this investment in in our communities. And I, I think that I think, as you say, this really important going forward. Yeah, I think that will be the trick. We, I think we've probably all made um, mid-year New Year's resolutions to ourselves when things open up again, we're going to do this, we're not going to do this. It's trying to hang on to that, mm. isn't it? And trying to get everybody to, to, to remember when it starts to pass away in terms of our memory of how actually isolating and scary it was and how normally quite resilient and very stable people, you know, had difficulties as well. And I think it's trying to keep that in, a, in the forefront of our memory provides the opportunity for us to try and develop things as we go forward. Yeah, totally. I, I hope we we learn lessons from this crisis, you know, and I hope that we um, take away the lessons that we've learned and keep them with us, because I think it would be just the most frustrating thing for us to have survived this pandemic together and then turn our backs on each other again and kind of shrug our shoulders and be like, you know, all yeah. the things we've learned don't matter. And that extends to supporting local communities as much as it does to supporting children through childhood mm -hmm. adversity, you know. Totally. Totally. Lisa, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank it's, you. it's really just been so lovely. Cheers. Thank you, Kira. Now that we have a broad overview of what we mean when we're talking about mental health and how mental health issues can manifest, particularly for young people, I want to turn our attention to how we go about treating mental ill health. We commonly associate treating mental illness with talk therapy, exercise, medication, but there's a wealth of exciting things that are happening in mental health research that might change the way we think about treating mental illness in the future. To that end, I'm here with a colleague of Lisa's, Dr. Paul Best, who's also a lecturer at SSESW. Um, Paul, do you want to tell us a little about yourself and what you do? Yes, thanks, Kira. Uh, like Lisa, great, great to be here. And uh, I think this is a very important uh, conversation we have, and particularly, um, you know, going into the new year in the, in, in the January, where mental health uh, problems and, and, and issues can 
traditionally um, tend to be at their, um, their, their, their greatest, although I appreciate the, the current pandemic has maybe altered things a wee bit. But yes, my name mm-hmm. is Paul Best. And I suppose for this talk, what's most relevant is that I lead the Immersive Technologies and Digital Mental Health Network within our school. Uh, as you've already said, I am a qualified social worker uh, and I'm also uh, a cognitive cognitive behavioral therapist. Uh, so I keep a small clinical caseload as well as my uh, academic work within Queens. Okay, so you've actually already mentioned the thing I was going to ask you in our in our first question, because we've just been hearing from Lisa about the Youth Wellbeing Survey, which brings kind of like, you know, groundbreaking big data elements to the table when we're talking about understanding mental health. And, and you've just mentioned that you're part of another fascinating and innovative project related to this area, which is the use of immersive technology and therapy. Can you tell me a little bit more about exactly what you mean when you say immersive tech? Yeah, absolutely. Great, great question, because I think sometimes in the literature, uh, it gets used in, in a number of different ways. So really, when, when we're talking about immersive technology, it's technology that tries to emulate or alter the physical world uh, to try and give the user a sense that they're they're in that space they're in a different space and when we describe immersive technology essentially there's a number of different forms that i'll maybe just highlight now if that's useful for listeners so the first one is virtual reality which um it's kind of like an in thing at the moment spurred on by the fact that headsets are um you know a lot cheaper than they used to be and uh, they're not no longer kind of in these specialist centers uh where you know it's very few people can get access to them um so uh, virtual reality is really uh reality uh, experienced inside a headset in which uh you know the user is, is completely immersed in all outside uh, stimuli or sensory information is blocked out uh, and it's one of the most uh, sort of like very popular and growing forms of immersive technology the another type is augmented reality and this is really where digital imagery is kind of presented on top of the real world uh, so when we think about ar uh, snapchat filters would be a good example and uh, pokemon go uh, so okay. that's augmented kind of uh, AR. 360 video, which is something that I'm particularly interested in because uh, I think it can be very useful in a clinical uh, setting, but is also a lot more cost effective than some of the other technologies. And that's really, if we think about Google Street View, uh, and so if you're going to try and find, uh, I don't know, a, sort of a local landmark or trying to get directions to wherever you're going and you can see everything in the shot, you can look above, you can look uh, you know, right or left. Uh, that's, that's shot on a 360 video camera. And what we can also do with that technology, which is really cool, is we can upload that onto a virtual reality headset. And then, therefore, you can you can uh, be in the environment and use your just your your head movements to navigate around that space. Another type um, that I'm really excited about is mixed reality, and this is kind of like a combination of uh, AR and VR, so augmented reality and virtual reality. Uh, the key difference being it uses a headset, uh, and uh, so it's got that that elements of virtual reality, but uh, it's similar to AR in the fact that it's kind of overlaying digital imagery on uh, in the real world okay some people describe it as kind of like you know the second generation or ar 2.0 uh and it's some really cool stuff happening there uh the the problem is unfortunately that the the headsets the hololens in particular i think it's over three thousand pounds so you might have to wait a while before that uh 
gets a bit affordable. Uh, and then the last one just to say is you'll hear the term XR getting mentioned quite a lot, which is extended reality. And that's another kind of umbrella term for everything I've just mentioned. So your head's maybe going to explode a wee bit after going through all those different types. But uh, that's generally what we mean when we say immersive sort of technology, immersive experiences. It's sort of an umbrella term for all those different types of technology. This is absolutely crazy to me. Our listeners can't see, but I'm laughing because I, I've, I've put on a virtual reality reality headset a total of once and I thought I was going to throw up. Um, I don't know, is it because I wear glasses or something? I don't know, but I just couldn't, I did not enjoy it at all. Um, Pokemon Go is probably more my speed. Um, so the idea that there exists like this wealth of all these different kinds of immersive tech out there where you can overlay, you know, um, one on top of the other and different kinds of um, realities on top of our own reality actually makes me feel <laughs> a little untethered, uh, a little nauseous. And I suppose, I guess that then my next question has to be like, how on earth do you use this kind of technology to treat like mental ill health? You know, I, I can understand maybe like, um, you know, VR, but I would definitely love to know more about like using 360 or something like that. Yeah, I mean, th th there's loads of applications for this technology. Really, It really is limitless in some ways because um of its ability to kind of re recreate um you know environments in the real world recreate kind of uh emotional and cognitive reactions and um, there's there's been a lot of interest and work done in the states and elsewhere uh one there's a a, a really well-known professor called albert rizzo or skip rizzo mm -hmm. who is now a visiting uh, research professor within our network and he's written uh, countless books on the value of sort of virtual reality and immersive technology for use within clinical settings. And some of the things that come out from that research uh, is describing virtual reality as being used in an, for exposure-based approaches. So if we consider anxiety disorders and post-traumatic stress disorder, you've talked a lot about, about trauma in the previous segment. Uh, invariably for, for PTSD, um, there will have to be some sort of exposure to the trauma memory uh, during the course of treatment. And that's, you know, tends to be fairly consistent uh, regardless of what particular protocol that you're using. Same with anxiety disorders. Um, if it's like a social anxiety disorder, there will be some level uh, of, of exposure to social situations. Uh, for OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, there will be an exposure to um, whatever it is that person's struggling with. Uh, it could be a contamination type thing where they have to expose themselves a bit more to uh, germs or untidiness and, and, and things like that. The Another um, way it can be used is through distraction. Um, so tend to take attention away from painful medical procedures. Uh, I know some of the colleagues in dentistry have been um, sort of looking into this to see how it might work with children who have really bad dental anxiety. Uh, there was a really um, interesting uh, program I seen uh, that was displayed by colleagues up in Ulster. Uh, and that was about pain and trying to focus attention on uh, uh, your attention on like certain breathing activities to try and distract from pain, which is showing really promising results. There, it can be used for motivation, uh, trying to get people to do repetitive, maybe kind of go as far as say boring kind of exercises and trying to get them engaged more with that. I mean, I'm involved in a project at the moment, really interesting one. It's not mental health based, but it is focusing on 
Parkinson's disease, and it's about a virtual reality platform to try and get people to do their exercises to try and prevent functional decline. Uh, but that would also work in other settings, thinking depression in particular, um, where motivation can be very low. That might be a really nice way of engaging people and getting their attention and getting them to do things that they might not kind of normally do, uh, or it might be hard to, to get them to do in, 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 in um, you know, a more like outdoor kind of setting or, or whatever. Um, there's about measurement in terms of how you can, you know, measure performance of how people are getting on and kind of track that, which is very useful in a, in a, a therapeutic setting. And again, because of the technology, you've you've got options on how to do that and the different types of measurements that we're able to get now using this technology. We can look for Lisa's survey, um, you know, was was very good and uh, as you said before, really much needed uh, within here, but. Uh, we do rely on the sort of mental health sector, if you like, a lot of self-report measures of mental health. And technology does give us that kind of added option of putting more physiological measures and kind of combining the two, which can be really interesting. You know, do people's heart rate come go up? Do they breathe more? Do skin temperature and uh, increase? And then the last one that kind of links into the motivation is around uh, engagement. Okay, so capturing the attention uh, of people uh, to kind of motivate them in a way to, to get them to do to do things or just as an interest in, uh, you know, different way of viewing things. There's also been some research around um, post-traumatic stress disorder that individuals, because it's so difficult to do the exposure element of that condition, that actually people are more likely to agree to put on a headset to do the exposure than they would be to say, go back to the alleyway where the assault happened in real life or in some instances, in, in the, the case of the work completed by Skip Rizzo and his colleagues, where it was military-based PTSD, they couldn't, it wasn't really feasible to fly people back over to the <laughs> Middle East, you know, but you could put a headset on and, and get through. So that's the kind of where it might be used for. And then there's all this other stuff around as a clinician, how you might, you know, use this technology. So I, I talked a bit about monitoring real-time performance. Uh, you can be very bespoke in relation to the exposure that you're delivering. So you can tailor an experience based around someone's unique experience. So there are kind of similarities across the conditions and ways you would treat them, but everyone's experience of that disability disorder or if that traumatic event will be slightly different. So you've got that option to do that. Uh, there's, um, again, there's there's options to pause stuff if it's not going well. So in a cognitive behavioral therapy approach, you'd be doing a lot of behavioral experiments uh, out, outside with people. So say if it was someone, say for instance, social anxiety, you're out in a restaurant or whatever and doing that 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 behavioral experiment with them. Uh, sometimes it, it, it goes wrong. You know, and people yeah. come back and they're, you know, and the confidence is shaken and it's kind of confirmed their belief and thoughts that they can't they can't do this. Um, but within a kind of a virtuality uh, simulation, you can pause if it's going wrong and you can kind of reflect and go, OK, well, what we seem to be getting really anxious here. Um, you know, what's going on? Um, what do we need? What have we forgotten the kind of in terms of the techniques they apply? Uh, and then and this feeds into some of the other work we do around um, training it also provides a kind of a, a safe environment uh, where we can minimize risk. Um, right. Okay, so you're, uh, and it, it feeds quite well into some of the, the health and social care training, uh, which, which runs alongside the kind of use for mental health health therapy. Um, and then the last one that I'll just that I'll just mention is this opportunity for individuals to practice outside of uh, the clinical sort of setting or outside of the therapy session. So you could take this 
this headset home or if you had your own and you, you had a program you could upload to it and, and practice those techniques without the therapist actually there because only- it sounds like you're really bringing the most like cutting edge technology home, like you're making it accessible for people in a way that, you know, I think when we opened the segment, you were saying that headsets like these have become much more inexpensive and widely available to the general population. Like it's crazy to me to think that I could, you know, download that kind of a program to a headset that I had at home and access like cutting edge therapy stuff in the comfort of my bedroom. Yeah, and I, I think that it, for, for me, if you look, there's there's a, a lot of really good work that's been happening in this field for a number of years. Um, but where I think the next step is, and, and the technology, particularly locally as well, it's exploding. There's so many uh, technology companies doing really interesting stuff. It's not all in mental health, it's not all in health, but um, you know, you can use a lot of that technology and can, it transfers over. But where I think we need to go is, um, and just as you said there about being able to afford a headset, it's to try and make this technology more, more accessible, okay? So mm. it's great. There's a lot of research that's showing it can be, can be really effective. Uh, it's certainly very, very promising, but we now need to, to take the next big leap, which is if you were to go for counseling or therapy, um, how do you get access to this stuff and to make it more accessible? So it, it's a, that's really where I think where the excitement is at, at this moment is, is we're just on the cusp of trying to bring these, this stuff into more routine clinical services and not just sort of specialist sort of centers or as part of large scale academic research projects and things. And so is that where you feel the, this technology is going to play its best role moving forward? Like cause you were saying that you're also trained as a cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapist. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering, what do you imagine the role of this kind of technology to be in treating mental ill health going forward? Like, do you see it being used alongside kind of a talk therapy sort of a thing? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I suppose the main thing to state is that this technology, I don't envisage it as replacing the therapist. Uh, particularly as a lot of the conditions uh, that that you come across in, in therapy are, are complex and uh, and I think you really need that in person um, you know human input into that process but the way I would like to think of immersive technologies is really a, another sort of tool in the toolkit for therapists that they can uh, bring it out when they need to enhance an element uh, of, of what they're doing already okay and and that's also important because some of the treatment protocols, Again, uh, trauma, for example, uh, are quite well evidenced and are shown to be effective. Um, so they do work. The difficulties, unfortunately, are that uh, it can be very difficult for the person to go through that. There's a lot of trust uh, has to be developed. Uh, some of the sites that you might want to visit could be difficult to access. And also there's big waiting lists to get into this kind of specialist therapy. Uh, so... I mean, I think there's potential there for uh, technology to kind of help with some of those things. But ultimately, we don't want to change anything that's been shown to work and work well. Uh, we just want to see if we can we can enhance it. Uh, so that would be some of my um, thoughts on that. So I don't have to worry about a robot replacing therapists. No, I know. Interestingly, <laughs> there's, there, I have seen some work now where they are looking at these kind of virtual bots, these intelligent humans. And I've seen a few examples. Um, interestingly, it was a, it was a social work um, scenario. Uh, it was a project over in the States uh, where the social work was having a social worker was having a conversation with um, with uh, you know a virtual character who was talking about his problems, and it was the character was reacting. And then I've also seen it where you've kind of got this virtual clinician who 
you know, uh, pops up in front of you and uh, and says, "Look, I'm not, um, I'm not a, you know, a, a real life person or a therapist, but uh, you know, I've I've been, you know, trained and programmed, uh, you know, with some knowledge about these things, and you know, let's have a chat and see how it goes. So, so there is some interesting uh, stuff happening. Uh, so, it, so who knows how far it is away? Oh, technology, <laughs> so scary and so wonderful at the same time. It's just, yeah, it's a, it's a whole new world. And I'm I'm not somebody who knows a lot about technology, so I'm not sure whether to be terrified or encouraged um, by this. But I suppose speaking then of technology and, and you know, things that are happening, um, I know that you are involved in the Immersive Technologies Network at Queen's. And before we finish up, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about that and what kind of projects you have on the go. Yeah, absolutely. Uh I mean, the, the network is really a transdisciplinary partnership of academics, practitioners and technology companies focusing on both therapeutic and pedagogical sort of advances in mental health and social care through digital means. So it sounds like a mouthful, but essentially we've got our, our, our the, the idea is let's bring together a bunch of people from different backgrounds with different skill sets. And let's see if we can address these complex problems like how do we use this technology to support the treatment of mental health uh, conditions? But also, how do we help prepare our health and social care work- workforce to go out and work with you know more complex cases and things? And and the reason why and how that technology allows us to bridge the gap is if we can re- recreate authentic environments. Uh, they're not just useful for exposure type work or or distraction or engagement, but they're actually really interested in training settings where you can have this kind of safe exposure you can encourage uh you know students to try things to make mistakes you know it's right because like the consequences aren't like the same as in real life absolutely and i mean some of the 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 criticisms um you know of of social work and and sort of different um health and social care professions particularly social work is this kind of risk averse attitude uh and and you could see how that would develop you know because you're out for the first it's it's real life you know the consequences of your decisions matter and um and you know you really haven't had any sort of experience in sort of of you know something that's happened and you're, you're really just being over cautious and in, in every kind and it takes a while maybe to build up the experience where you're confident enough in your own professional decision making to say well look i i think this is the way we should go so um yeah it's really um it's really exciting uh, for training as well that, that's really wonderful thank you so much for talking to me today i've learned so much um i kind of didn't realize that there was such a like a, a vast field in um, creating immersive tech. Um, I think my partner is probably laughing listening to this because he's a, a software engineer, so I should know better. Um, but it's wonderful to think that the most kind of cutting edge technology is being, you know, used to kind of treat, I suppose, age old problems. Like, you know, we've been, we're anxious people since the dawn of time. Like it's it's lovely to think that there are new ways forward for helping people that um we can the most most of us can barely even imagine absolutely Kira. and i mean we are involved i mean we've got a number of different projects looking at um you know training and, me- and mental health but one of the key things i would say particularly for uh the audience and students watching this is that even if your background isn't in mental health as you mentioned your partner there has been involved in programming those are the types of individuals we want to hear from because 
you know, I have sort of my own area of interest that I try and keep up up to date on. But, you know, when I talk to the tech guys and the computer scientists uh, who, you know, who are immersed in this other world of things that are that are going on. And, and that's where the really cool conversations happen. Uh, so, I mean, definitely, if there's anyone listening who wants to get in touch, uh, who's got an idea, and um, that's part of our brief is the is the work with different disciplines um, around those, those, those two areas. So, yeah, absolutely. Get in touch. It's wonderful. Paul, thank you so much. It's really just been such a pleasure. Um, I, I'm really smiling. It's just, it's just been great. Um, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Great stuff. Thanks, Kira. That's it for our thematic episode for this month's theme of mental health. It's been such a pleasure speaking to Lisa and Paul, and we have another fantastic Researcher Spotlight episode lined up for you in two weeks' time. I'll be speaking to Jordan McCulloch, a fellow PhD student in the Department of French, about how the written and spoken words can be instrumental in working through difficult emotions such as grief and despair. January can be a tough time for many people, so don't forget to check out the links in our show notes if you need support. Queen's have a wonderful student wellbeing service available with holistic supports and one-to-one counselling. And for Queen's students, this should be your first port of call. Stay tuned for our next episode in two weeks. And in the meantime, let us know what you thought of this week's episode on social media or leave a review for us. We're at QUB Voices on Twitter, Spotify and iTunes. (laughs) 